0: My name is German and this is Jim Warfare: The Battle of Ideas. I uh, am in my second week of being away from home, uh, so you will have to forgive my bare-bones setup here, uh, with a few desk lamps and uh, a somewhat lousy internet connection. But uh, we're going to try our best, and hopefully, everything goes smoothly. I have a really great uh, guest, and um, on Monday night. Uh, we were supposed to have gone live, but what happened was uh, Apple did a, a massive update and it broke off the software on my, on my computer, but uh, I think we are all up and running. And let me, let me introduce my guest uh, by, by playing a video clip. Well,
1: one of my missions is to turn on its head the idea that carbon dioxide is a pollutant and somehow dangerous when in fact it is the most important nutrient for all life on earth and without it this would be a dead planet. So I say not only is carbon dioxide good, it is essential and it's a good thing that we are putting some more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because it was running low before we came along.
0: Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you for joining me. All the way from Canada.
1: Great to be here. Can I call you Germ?
0: You can call me Germ. That's what uh, half of the country calls me. Um, <laughs> can I call you? Can I call you Patrick? Please do. <laughs> um, it is evening here, and it is morning there. And Yes, I believe- it's
1: late We're here. A cloudy, still day with the fall coming on and the first frost yesterday.
0: I saw some uh, imagery. Um, on, on, on the internet, and uh, the entire northern hemisphere seems to be below zero.
1: Yes, uh, well, we're just at exactly zero in the morning now, uh, but it's, uh, it's, an, it's a nor- fairly normal here. On, on the west coast of Canada, we have a very mild climate, so uh, the extremes of climate are in the, in the east and in the interior and in the north. Mm. But Canada is the coldest country in the world, Average temperature minus 5.35 Celsius. Uh, Russia is only the second coldest uh, country in the world. And it's because Canada has all these islands stretching up towards the North Pole. It averages out to be colder than even Russia.
0: Canada also has uh, a a black prime minister, (laughs) Justin Trudeau. Yeah, right.
1: Well, on occasion, anyway. Uh, Apparently, that's okay if you're left, though. It's only if you're right that you can't do blackface. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, I wanted to read your introduction on on Wikipedia, but then I realized that Wikipedia is uh, the bastion of fact, the bastion of truth. So, I I figured, well, Wikipedia kind of makes up its own facts. Um, It it calls you a climate change denier. Um, And I find that a fairly vile term because it, From my understanding, it's a reference to the Holocaust.
1: It is indeed a reference to the Holocaust, as that is the primary place where it's been used in the language, is is people who deny that the Holocaust occurred. And, of course, that is hate speech, and it is also a lie. Uh, So to call a person a climate denier is ridiculous, because nobody denies that there's a climate to call people a climate change denier is equally ridiculous because nobody says the climate never changes. So I, they, if they want to call me a denier, they should they should say I am a carbon dioxide is good denier or something uh, yeah, because I do believe that carbon dioxide is good and beneficial and necessary, all of which is true, uh, and yet they still call you a denier because I'm not actually denying anything. It yeah. is the deniers who are actually the deniers. And this is the hallmark of the left to accuse you of being what they are. Uh, Trotsky was one of the great uh, champions of this approach in life uh, because it deflects attention, attention from your own denial. And the, so, so the catastrophists, the alarmists, the climate emergency nutbars are basically calling us deniers so that no one will notice that they are actually denying virtually the whole history of the Earth and the relationship between temperature and CO2 yeah. and, the fact, and the fact that carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth, which you don't hear them ending too often.
0: So, but the, the, What strikes me also as weird about that denier term is that it, it's premised on the, on the idea that, uh, that there's this default truth, um that exists and any uh, uh swing from it is a denial of that of that fundamental truth which is very cult-like
1: it's a sort of uh, ideological religious cult yes uh and basically they say the climate says they say things like that they say it's well of course it's been proven that co2 is causing the warming when that is actually a lie there if i've always said if they had a proof they would write it down on a piece of paper and show it to us. But there is no proof. All there is is the hypothesis that because CO2 is a greenhouse gas and all else being equal would probably cause a slight amount of warming. There you go with the all else being equal, though, because all else is never equal. If CO2 caused a little bit of warming and that warming caused more clouds, it would completely negate the warming effect. So the feedbacks in the climate system, positive and negative, are in some ways more important than the individual factors because any individual factor can actually be negated by other factors. Like the heat of the sun, for example, mm. the yeah. amount of heat reaching the Earth is hugely dependent on how cloudy it is, whether there's a lot of clouds or very few clouds. And the, 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 the heat escaping from the Earth is highly dependent on clouds as well. So I've always said that clouds are the wild card in the climate change calculation because as as Joni Mitchell, who is a Canadian, uh, said in her song, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and Mm -hmm. still somehow it's clouds illusions, I recall. We really don't know clouds at all. And that translates into you look up in the sky at a cloud pattern. And tell me you can write a computer program that will predict what it's going to be an hour from now, how that pattern is going to change an hour from now. It's impossible. And so there's so many things in the climate that are chaotic, that are multidimensional, that are nonlinear. And even the IPCC, deep down in its documentation, admits this. That actually makes it impossible through mathematics and computer models to predict the future climate of the Earth. It's simply not possible. Mm. So, at at the very basis of this whole thing, it is actually just a guess based on computer models that use the assumptions of the catastrophists to predict catastrophe. So, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way.
0: It's it's circular. Just quickly… Before you, before you get too intricate, someone in the comments, <laughs> as predicted, um, says, can't watch this, your guest is a fool. Let's just quickly talk about your, your history. Uh, for those who don't know, you are a co-founder of Greenpeace, despite Greenpeace trying to deny that you're a, a co-founder. It's, it's, um, I've seen it. It's in the Internet archives. Your name is there. Uh, and you're also a past president of Greenpeace, and you are yourself a scientist.
1: Yes, uh, this is conveniently ignored. Uh, I was a co-founder of Greenpeace. Greenpeace named me as a co-founder on their website until 36 years after we founded it. It was 2007 when I came out in favor of nuclear energy for the first time in my life, because we'd been against nuclear energy in the Greenpeace years, and I had realized quite some time ago that that was a big mistake, that we should have put nuclear energy in with nuclear medicine as a beneficial use of nuclear technology, rather than lumping it in with nuclear weapons as something dangerous and catastrophic. It was a mistake, uh, an honest one at the time. And uh, so I came out in favor of nuclear energy, and they scrubbed my name from the list of founders. These These are people who weren't there at the founding of Greenpeace. None of them were there. They don't have a clue what was happening then. And the history has been clearly written by other people, including Bob Hunter, myself, and others who were there at the time. And to claim that I'm not a co-founder of Greenpeace is total historical revisionism. But they're very good at that, of course, of just wiping things out from the past and, and papering over them.
0: You've got 30 years of, uh, of experience in environmental matters. Is that right? Have I got, have I got my, do- my, my facts correct?
1: I'd say it's closer to 50, from when I was 22 at least. Sure. Uh, but actually, actually, by the time I was 18, I was seriously uh, studying life science and lear- learning about ecology, which is a word that wasn't even used in the mid-1960s at that time. So, yeah, I've been around the block, and I've been in the environmental movement in a, in a formal capacity for 15 years, from 1971 to 1986. And it was in 86 that I realized I had to get out because Greenpeace had drifted from a somewhat humanitarian orientation to save human civilization from all-out nuclear war. That was our original campaign platform uh, to, to, to basically stating that humans are the enemies of the Earth. Humans are the enemies of nature. And so to divide humans away from the rest of nature, when in fact we are sprung from nature the same as all other species are, And it's just too much like original sin for me to say that humans are the only bad species and that everything else is good, like nature is good, humans are bad. We are nature, so we better face up to that. And, of course, we have uh, taken a lot of responsibility in that regard. We are the first species in the history of evolution that cares about the extinction of other species. There is no other species. Bears don't care about whether ants go extinct, Mm. you know, but humans do. And actually that's been institutionalized worldwide, that wherever there is a species that is in danger of extinction, there is a program to prevent it. That would never have happened a hundred years ago, even. It was only like just less than a hundred years ago. It was the, the the extinction of the passenger pigeon in the United States could more or less be demarcated as the point where the general public became concerned about extinction. Before that, it was just a few naturalists who might have bemoaned some you know, exotic mm-hmm. species going extinct somewhere. But uh, it, it came in the early 1900s, uh, the concern about extinction. And and today we really do care about it. Yeah. And, and today, of course, too, all these wild catastrophe theories are being said that half the species are going to go extinct if the temperature goes up another half a degree C. And uh, I, again, complete cock or, yeah. you know, balderdash or whatever term you prefer to say BS. You know, it is complete garbage, this kind of catastrophism. There's no, that's not going to happen. And I've challenged people uh, on, on, on Twitter and in public, and I've got, you know, 93,000 followers on Twitter or something along those lines now. I challenge people to name anything in the climate or weather today that is out of ordinary with the last 10,000 years of this Holocene interglacial period that we've been in. There's nothing. There's always been hurricanes. There's always been tornadoes and floods and droughts. Mm. Some weather is pleasant. Other weather is nasty. And nasty weather is not a new thing. You know, like Al Gore said, dirty energy causes dirty weather. You know, I hate metaphors being used in science. Mm. Metaphors are for fiction, they're, they're, you know, and for novels and things. And, and for talking in everyday life to explain to people, well, it's sort of like this. Or it's, you know, that's actually a simile. But metaphors should not be used in science. Someone was telling me the other day that the climate is like a bathtub. Oh, right. Okay. The climate is like a bathtub. Give me a break. It's not like a bathtub. A bathtub is like a bathtub. (laughs) And You know, so I I, I wish people would stop using language in such stupid ways to say things like the climate says. Yes. Or the climate science says, you know, science doesn't say things. Science is a process, a process of discovery and a process that's very methodical. That's why it's called methodology when you design an experiment because the methodology is the guts of trying to find a cause-effect relationship through observation and experimentation and then eventually replication to make sure that it happens the same way every time. That's science. And the climate change so-called science that we're being given is not science at all. As you say, it's actually more like a religious belief or a cult.
0: Okay, so th- this is such a massive topic, okay, and it's obviously impossible to cover it even in one hour, but let's, if 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 you don't mind, could we start at the start and just tell the story very briefly of how we got to where we are today? Um, basically, there were dinosaurs, uh, carbon dioxide levels were very high, life flourished hundreds of millions a year, of years ago, there have been a few mass extinctions, life has continued to flourish despite all of that, uh, and uh, and carbon dioxide levels have gradually decreased over millions of years to, uh, what, 200 years ago more or less, or 1,000 years ago to where they are around about 270 uh, parts per million to today where it's about 400 or just over 400 parts per million. And apparently now in the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, uh, there's been this spike, this, this acceleration, and as that scientist Michael Mann and his hockey stick said, it's this acceleration that's the concern, not the fact that there's uh, a fluctuation in carbon dioxide. Have I, have, have I got the gist correct?
1: Yes, more or less, Germ. Uh, the the truth is that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, so there's been a climate ever since then, Uh, but let's just deal with the last 450, I mean, sorry, 550 million years or so, because this is when modern life emerged. It was called the Cambrian Explosion. Prior to that, for over three billion years, life had been microscopic, unicellular, that is single-celled, and confined to the sea. So there was no life on the land at all at that time, and actually the Cambrian Explosion occurred only in the sea, and in the sea, suddenly, multi. Species emerged, multicellular species emerged, big things compared to the microscopic ones. But they were all soft. There were no hard parts, no skeletons, no shells at first. And then shells and skeletons emerged in the sea. The vertebrates, the bony fishes, and the clams, and, and crabs, and shrimp that have shells on them. That's when fossils really started to be preserved so that we could go back and see what the evolution of life was through time. Mm. So at that time, CO2 was somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 parts per million in the global atmosphere. In other words, 10 to 15 times higher than it is today even, never mind what it was back in the last glaciation, you see. And then gradually over time, over the half billion years, CO2 has declined. Whereas temperature has just gone up and down. There's been hothouse ages or greenhouse ages, as they're called, and then ice house ages during the ice ages, which we are in now. That's something that hardly anybody understands. They think the last glaciation was the end of the ice age. No, the Pleistocene Ice Age has had about 45 major glaciations, and 20,000 years, the last one came to an end, and we came back into an interglacial period which we've also been in 40 mm-hmm. times during this Pleistocene Ice Age. So there's every reason to believe that we will go back into another major glaciation, which takes about 80,000 years from now because they're 100,000-year cycles. Yes. There's no reason to believe that the 100,000-year cycles that have recurred and recurred over and over again the last million years won't continue to yeah. occur. We should sort of assume that they will as a, as a default uh, expectation or prediction. But the fact that carbon dioxide continually went down is what a lot of people don't understand, that CO2 levels today, yeah. yes, they're higher than they were 100 years ago, but they're lower than they have been in the history of life on Earth during this period, even yeah. including our addition of CO2 to take it up to just over 400 parts per million. CO2 has been declining steadily for the last 150 million years, after some ups and downs before that, but never getting as low as it has been in recent history. During the last glaciation and the four previous ones, which we know from the Vostok Antarctic ice cores, CO2 reached 180 parts per million, the lowest it has been in the history of the Earth. It's it's not colder now than it has been in the history of the Earth, but it is around as cold as it has been in the history of the Earth during this Pleistocene ice age that we've been in for the last 2.5 million years. But CO2 is lower than it's been in the whole history of the Earth right now. Well, it was 20,000 years ago when it plunged down to 180. The The reason CO2 goes down during glaciations is because the oceans cool. And cold water holds more gas than warm water. So the ocean sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere when the Earth cools. And when the Earth warms back up as to 10,000 years ago, as all these huge glaciers melted, the oceans warm and they give off CO2. Yeah. So CO2 went from 180 to 260. Sure. At the beginning of this Holocene interglacial 10,000 years ago, since then, it's actually it actually had risen another 20 ppm before we started burning fossil fuels. And since we have, it's risen up to 410, 415. But even at the level it's at now, it is much lower than yeah. all the plants on Earth prefer it to be. CO2 is a limiting factor to the growth of trees, and food crops, even today, because it's around 800, double what it is today, that it starts to become optimum for many species of plants, and indeed, up to around 2,000 parts per million, so somewhere between 800 and 2,000 is where it's optimum for whatever species you're talking about. Many plants and, well, many greenhouse growers put it up to 1,500 parts per million, in other words, four times sorry three times what it is now many put it to 800 which is twice what it is now and all commercial greenhouse growers put extra co2 in their greenhouses because they get somewhere between 20 and 60 percent more productivity from their crops when they do that is that so this is the first thing that people have to know is that is that co2 in this era of life, right now in this Pleistocene Ice Age, is lower than it's been in the history of life on Earth and is actually getting close to where it threatens the existence of life on Earth because at 150 ppm, only 30 parts per million lower than it went down to in the last glaciation, plants begin to die. And indeed, it's thought many plants at higher elevations did die during that period because there's an ash layer indicating fire, and burning of vegetation at that time that would indicate that there had been dead wood in the higher forests and caught fire and left this ash layer. That, that's hy- hypothetical, but it appears to be logical because as you go up in the atmosphere, it thins. So it may be 180 ppm at the sea level that it's sufficient for plants, but get up 1,000 or 2,000 metres and it may not be sufficient because it's thinned out. And just like we need a certain level of oxygen to survive, plants need a certain level of CO2, not just some CO2, but they need at least 150 ppm just to survive. But they're starving to death basically at that level and And it's a good thing that we've increased it.
0: Is that why, Patrick, uh, NASA put out a, a satellite image of how the Earth has been greening over the last 50 years due to uh, increased levels of carbon dioxide. Because, yes, because more the, carbon dioxide. NASA,
1: both NASA, the National Association of Space Administration, and also NOAA, the, the Organization for Atmosphere and Oceans, have both validated that satellite record that goes back into the 1980s that shows a dramatic increase in greening of the earth. Sometimes up to 30% more uh, vegetation on land areas, and trees are now able to move out into grasslands that were too dry for them before, Mm. because increased CO2 not only is a fertilizer for all plants, it is the main food for all plants, which is the basis of all life, because if it wasn't any plants, there wouldn't be any animals. People don't think of carbon dioxide as food because it's not our food. Our food is the sugars and other substances that the plants make from carbon dioxide. But the source of the carbon in every living thing on Earth is CO2 from the atmosphere and from being dissolved in the oceans, where there's actually nearly 50 times as much CO2 in the oceans as there is in the atmosphere. So a small change in oceanic CO2 makes a big change. In atmospheric CO2 and that's what we saw during the Bostock ice core record of the last four glaciation events on the planet right now we're in an interglacial period Mm. where it came back up again but there is simply no doubt and CSIRO which is the peak Australian science body has also got a map showing up to 30 percent increase in vegetation over over even the driest areas on earth
0: why then so would this, that
1: be a bad so thing? No, what? Sorry.
0: Why would that be a bad thing then? Because I saw a couple news articles saying that uh, the fact that I think it was the New York Times. So take it with a pinch of salt. But I think they ran a story saying that uh, the greening of the earth is not a good thing. I'm trying to figure out how this is not a good thing.
1: They would say if you got a glass of water when you're. You know, dying of thirst in the desert, that that would be a bad thing. Uh, it, it, it's just ridiculous to say that that vegetation is a bad thing on the earth. I mean, the, the Sahara Desert was actually green from about 10,000 to 5,000 years ago. There were towns all across it. There were sheep herders and goat herders and cattle herders all across it, and then 5,000 years. This is just a little warming blip called the modern warm period, The previous cold period, which was called the Little Ice Age, which peaked 300 years ago in 1700, was the coldest it's been in 10,000 years. So we came out of the glaciation in a steep rise, took 10,000 years to do it, but it was a big temperature increase. And then we've been sort of bobbing along up and down, up and down for the next 5,000 years. But that was the Holocene climate optimum when it was actually warmer than it is now. And then 5,000 years ago, there was a break. Geologists call this last 5,000 years the Neo-Glacial period, the new glacial period. And during the Little Ice Age, glaciers advanced more than they had done for the previous 10,000 years. Mm. Now they are receding. This is the globe. This is the modern warm period. But it's not as warm now as it was throughout almost the entire Holocene period, except for the very cool periods. We are not in an exceptionally warm period. And yet they say another half degree. Good grief, it's been, it's, the Earth has been eight to 10 degrees Celsius warmer than this if you go back 50 million years to the Eocene mm. Thermal Maximum. All the all the ancestors of every living thing on Earth today lived through that. Yes. See, that's what people don't understand. They say, well, there were no humans then. No, but the progenitors of humans, the mammals were there then. Actually, the, the, apes, the ape family was already uh, in existence then. So, and, and to say that humans can't live through a warm period of climate is ridiculous. We are actually a tropical species. We came from the equator, and if it wasn't for fire, shelter, and clothing, three things. We couldn't live outside the deep tropics because a human being dies of hypothermia naked in the shade at 20 degrees Celsius. Our bodies are 36 inside.
0: Mm.
1: We, we can withstand a 36 degree temperature. We can't. We can't with. We can't withstand a 10 degree Celsius temperature if we have no clothes on yeah. and we're not in the sun.
0: Before it, you, it, it's
1: we... ridiculous how people think that these people are actually saying that another half degree, which would amount to 1.5 degrees since we started burning fossil fuels, yes. is going to wipe out half the species on Earth and and perhaps cause the extinction of the human species. It is so ridiculously bizarre. I can't... But, you know, kids don't know. Well, what they do you know? know?
0: I mean, what do you know, Patrick? A 16-year-old Swedish girl uh, who traveled across the Atlantic on a, on a multi-million dollar yacht, she knows, she knows what the future holds.
1: Yes, yeah, a carbon fiber yacht at that. <laughs> Trying to get rid of carbon. See, they they want to get rid of carbon, and carbon is the basis of all life. So right there, you've got a fair bit of a contradiction, uh, because what we really need is more carbon, more carbon dioxide. And And again, there's no proof that the carbon dioxide we have emitted has caused a little bit of warming that's occurred in the last 100 years. There's no proof of that. The warming started 300 years ago. The last time the River Thames in Britain froze over was 1814, Mm. And they were having big ice festivals out on it. So it was thick ice. It had frozen over at least one decade before that for 300 years during the Little Ice Age. In 1814, it stopped freezing over so that you could have ice festivals on it. And there's many paintings of these ice festivals. And we know what year it was because there was history happening by then. And so there's no reason to say that mm. since 1814 all the warming has been caused by us because the warming caused the river Thames to stop freezing before that and we didn't do that and there's no proof that we're doing this which is actually quite benign if it if we yeah. went back to the little ice age right now crops would fail and people would starve all around the world well heating is better we don't it? want to go back to the little ice age
0: yeah, a warmer, warmer, a warmer climate is actually better than a cooler climate for for human existence.
1: Twenty times as many people die from the cold as from the heat. Yeah, twenty times.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, frost, how- and are, frost and ice are basically the enemies of life, and only a few specialized species have figured out how to deal with freezing temperatures and and still stay alive. They they either have a big fat layer and a lot of fur or they bury themselves in hibernation under the frost in the ground for the winter. Mm. Uh, many different strategies. Trees that grow in freezing areas actually expel all the water from their needles, like needle trees, which keep their leaves over the winter. How do those leaves survive? from be- Because you can't mm. freeze a cell and have it survive, because the ice crystals just chop everything up inside the cell. So what the trees do is every cell in every leaf sends its water into the space between the cells where it can freeze without hurting the internal organs of the cell which becomes like a gel antifreeze inside because there's no water there so it can't crystallize mm. and th- that's how specialized species have become to actually deal with freezing temperatures it would be much better if there was no freezing temperatures on earth for those things and then makes it very difficult for species to evolve to it. Like the polar bear, for example, is not actually a distinct species. It is a variety of the European brown bear or the grizzly bear, same species as it's called in North America. It came across the land bridge with people 15,000 years ago. So now that bear is circumpolar, Mm -hmm. and so are the polar bears to the north. But grizzly bears and polar bears, even though one's brown and one's white, can breed successfully and produce viable offspring. That is the definition of a species, because polar bears are just brown bears that adapted to the ice and snow over the millennia, because of, because of this ice age. If this ice age hadn't happened, there wouldn't be any polar bears.
0: Um, before you and I went live, um, we were chatting very briefly about um, an article that I was telling you about, uh, that I saw about Greenland Uh a thousand years ago where there was a discovery made about the Vikings and how they were growing I think it was corn. Uh, Today I don't believe they grow corn in in, in the south of Greenland but the temperatures a thousand years ago were a lot warmer in Greenland than what they are today and uh, carbon dioxide was a lot lower the the levels, Is, is that correct?
1: Yes, it certainly is. Well, it was it was in the sort of two eighty range, uh, which is where it was for quite a long time during the whole in the Holocene over ten thousand years. It went from two sixty to two eighty, mm. so not a huge change. But the conundrum is it went up while temperatures went down. Yes, so they've the actually name. gone in opposite directions to each other according to the litany. But uh, that that's happened all through history, though. Mm. CO two and temperature are hardly ever positively correlated in the historical record They're, and where they are it's usually the temperature that is causing the change in CO2 because the, the, the effect always comes you know the cause always comes before the effect and temperature rises before CO2 rises in the ice core records. So we know in fact that it is the temperature change that is mm-hmm. driving the change in atmospheric co2 over those timescales. And there's so many timescales to talk about. You can talk about hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, Mm -hmm. tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and then billions, right? I mean, all those timescales exist on this planet, and you can't see them all at once, and you can't analyze them all at once Mm -hmm. because different things happen at different rates in different timescales. There are cycles upon cycles upon cycles upon cycles and sometimes those cycles are not in sync. Most of the time, they're not in sync. Mm. So the cycles are all over each other. So that is what's called chaos. You can't predict the result of all those cycles working together uh, in, ran- in a sort of random fashion. Mm. Uh, but we do know for sure that it was warmer during the medieval warm period. But whenever you bring up Greenland, they say, oh no, that was just a local effect, right? That Southern Greenland was warm enough to grow crops and and support a fairly decent population of people. You know, the the Vikings also made it to northern Newfoundland in Canada, which Newfoundland, known as the rock, you can barely grow root vegetables there. It's so cold and rocky and harsh. But they were there farming as well. The remains of their village Mm. is on the northern tip of Newfoundland. They also evacuated, as the Little Ice Age came on, around 1300 they evacuated were all gone from there and they were all gone from Greenland as well because it got cold. And, the, and and now it's warming again out of that cold period. So these warming and cooling periods are well mapped in the Greenland ice cores. Yes. There are Greenland ice cores going back for more than 10,000 years. And those ice cores show us that the first The first 5,000 years of this interglacial period were warmer than now. That's why they call it the Holocene Climatic Optimum, because it used to be that warm was considered optimum. Now it's considered extinction material. It's bizarre. If you get warm. It's completely bizarre, and it's wrong. Like, why are so many people living in the warm countries? Why do people in the cold countries go to warm countries in the winter? I do that for a good reason because I like it there, mm. right? It's more more pleasant, it's less harsh. The, the freezing climate is harsh and Canada change countries in the world and they have an average temperature below zero and they're worried about warming. To worry about warming in Canada is so ridiculous because if it cooled one degree Celsius, our ability to farm Canada would come south 200 kilometers if it warmed a degree, our farming could expand towards the north yes. two hundred kilometers. Yes, exactly, the vast majority of Canada's land is incapable of agriculture because it's too cold.
0: Yes. Yeah. Now,
1: how is that good for the survival of people that it's too cold to even grow food there? Mm. You know, it doesn't now, make someone, sense at all.
0: Someone in the comments says that most marine life feeds in the, in the cooler water.
1: Uh, the cooler waters towards the poles are very rich because of the upwelling of nutrients. Uh, they, they, there's a lot of upwelling in the, in those waters. Uh, but And the tropical waters are indeed generally uh, less productive because a thermocline forms, and the nutrients from below can't come up into the surface. So this is a physical phenomenon. But it is a fact mm. that the Humboldt, current off Peru, which is pretty well right on the equator, is water that's upwelling from water that sank at the poles because it was cold. And that upwelled water is really rich in CO2 and the Humboldt Current produces 20% of all the world's fish catch. So the comment that was made there is is somewhat relevant. There there are very rich fisheries Mm. in, in northern waters because of the high productivity because the carbon dioxide and the nutrients in the deep water are coming to the surface to feed the plankton, which needs sunshine. The phytoplankton have to have solar energy. Yeah. So therefore, the productive area of the ocean is only in the surface. The, the, the bottom of the food chain yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, in, is in the surface. And so when you bring that rich water to the surface, you get the pollock fishery, for example, in the Bering Sea, which is, I think, the biggest single species fishery in the world or maybe the the the, uh, the the fishery of Peru I know is is the most fish caught in the world it's 20% of the world's fish sure. catch and this is the, this is the least alkaline water they would call it the most acidic but it's not acidic it's just least pH 7.8 to 7.9 instead of the world average of about 8.1 mm. so it's the least alkaline ocean in the world it's the highest CO2 ocean in the world in the in the tropics and it has the highest productivity because the water is warm and life does flourish better in warm conditions than it does in cold ones metabolism increases as the temperature increases that is a, a, a you know a biological fact that uh, plants grow faster when it's warm than when it's cold as long as you give them enough nutrients and water and it, it's just a fact
0: yeah um so patrick so one of the the, the the conversations that happens all the time in the media and with people um, around. So in South Africa, we call it a braai, uh, I you would call it a barbecue. Um, but a conversation. Oh, yes. But a conversation that would often happen around that is basically what then is causing what we're seeing? I mean, let's bring it right down to simplistic terms. Uh, people, if you, if you just look on Twitter and you look on Facebook and you listen to the conversations that people have, uh, they go, OK, this is causing this or this is leading to this. This is driving your car, is causing this, drive, uh, flying in aeroplanes, this is all. Let's just, let's just bring it down to some, some basic things. What are some of the factors that could potentially be um, impacting the climate, if at all?
1: Well, obviously, the most important effect on the climate is the sun. If there was no sun, this would be, uh, the Earth would be near absolute zero, which is minus Mm -hmm. 273 degrees Celsius. So there'd be no life if there was no sun. There'd be no warmth if there was no sun. Uh, Well, there'd be no Earth if there was no sun because it's all part of the solar system. So the sun is what you could say must be at least 90-some percent of the effect on climate on the earth and And we're beginning we're beginning to understand better some of the geomagnetical aspects of the sun the the different uh it isn't just sunlight that the sun gives off it gives off all kinds of other particles and rays and then there's the cosmic rays coming into our solar system from the rest of the galaxy the milky way galaxy and these are some clouds. And we're back to clouds again. And the the pattern of, of factors which affect clouds and their formation and their periodicity and how often they're there blocking the sunlight or blocking most of the sunlight is something that, again, you simply can't put in a computer model. So the truth is we really don't know exactly why these little cycles of warming and cooling have gone on all through the interglacial period and probably all through history. Mm. And again, cycles on cycles on cycles. There's the thousand year cycle of the Roman warm period, the, the, the dark ages, cool period, the medieval warm period, the little ice age, and now the modern warm period from peak to peak is a thousand years. Mm. We don't know what is causing that cycle, although, again, you would first look to the sun and look at the cycles of the sun. So some people are saying that we're going, because we're going into a quiet sun right now, uh, the Maunder minimum, for example, which is when the sun went quiet for more than 30 years, around 1700, was the peak or the nadir, or the bottom of the Little Ice Age cold. Some people believe that there will be a, 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 a temporary, maybe decades-long cooling that comes now. It, I I don't pretend to be able to predict the future. And I, 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 I joke that that makes me mad because I look like I don't know as much as the people who claim they can. But just claiming to be able to predict the future doesn't mean that you are actually able to. Mm. It, 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 most predictions are wrong about the future. As, as Yogi Berra, I think he was quoting someone else, Niels Bohr, I think, is, is, is credited with this, that predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Mm. And that, that is the thing that a lot of people don't understand, is facts that occurred in the past are much easier to know than things that will happen in the future. Yes. The future hasn't happened yet. And there's a lot of chaos in terms of predict- figuring, you know, in terms of determining what, how the future will unfold. Yes. And they're saying right now that carbon dioxide is the, the, the main enemy, right? That's the, that, That's an existential threat to life on Earth and all of this. That is such a bunch of baloney. Carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on yeah. Earth. And we do know that it's greening the Earth. That's a fact. The idea that it is, it is the, the main cause of the warming, or that CO two mm-hmm. is a control knob, they actually use that term. Again, a metaphor, right? It's ridiculous. It's not. There's no control knob called mm-hmm. CO two, but they they use that metaphor to say that CO two is the main factor causing the warming of the Earth today, unlike any other time in the history of the Earth, apparently. You know, because we didn't make the CO2 that was in the air originally. It came from out of the bowels of the earth. Oxidized carbon is what it is. The heat of the earth made the CO2, just like it made the water, H2O. And between the two of those things, they are the most important two molecules for all life, because that's what plants make sugar with. And sugar that plants make, glucose primarily, is the basis of the energy for all life on earth, including us. So there you go, these are real facts. The idea that CO2 is the cause of the slight warming, compared to the warming and cooling that has happened in the history of the Earth, this is nothing. It isn't really hardly even measurable. It's only one degree in the last 150 years. So, and they say it's unprecedented. That itself is a complete lie. The Earth has warmed and cooled by one degree over that period of time. Times in its history, probably mm. millions, because
0: it's pretty old. Going going back to some of those factors or those variables involved in climatic change, I'm reading a book at the moment um, about uh, all the all the possible influences. And of course, it's it's not really known. Uh, it's all a lot of it is speculation, and a lot of it is based on uh, historical trends, which I tend to believe uh, to be more accurate than projections Um, and the moon uh, also is supposedly an influence on on earth on the earth's climate i don't know how Um, i'm struggling with with that particular chapter but the moon apparently in its own um, orbital cycles has an influence over over uh, the way the climate changes on earth Uh, do you know anything about that No, and
1: I would be uh, in the speculative uh, uh, mode there. I don't see... The the moon is the main uh, influence on the tides, uh, and it has been for four billion years. Uh, And then the sun is the second most important, and then Jupiter also has an effect on the tides. And when you get the extremely high tides, it's usually because those three planetary objects are lined up in a way that makes the tides higher. Uh, and, of course, the new moon tides, when the moon and the sun are both pulling from the same side of the earth together, is when you get the biggest tides. And then the full moon tides, when they're pulling opposite, are the second highest tides.
0: But, uh, not but necessarily that, in, in that isn't really honest. a
1: climatic effect in any way okay. that I can imagine. Uh, so, no, I, I, I don't think I'd include the moon Okay. As a primary climate you, change
0: factor, you did say clouds and the sun, and of course other factors. Um, I believe there's something called. Oh, you're gonna have to correct me now. Is it electromagnetic forcing? Is that is that the correct terminology?
1: Well, it's it's because that's the sun too, uh, and, and and also the sun and galactic rays, cosmic rays combining together, uh, at some. When the sun is strong, when it has a lot of sunspots, it deflects the cosmic rays from coming into the solar system, whereas when the sun is weak, it lets them in, basically. And it's thought that nucleation of water vapor into clouds is affected by this. Svensmark uh, is the lead proponent of that hypothesis. But again, these are hypotheses. Mm. uh, The Milankovitch cycles are... Uh, Now, this is the longer term because the Milankovitch cycles are three different cycles. Milankovitch figured this out in the early part of the last century. Uh, Brilliant mathematician and and astronomer. Uh, The Milankovitch cycles, the 100,000-year cycle, which is the one that is now governing the glaciation sequences that we've been going through for the last million years, the 100,000-year glacial cycles, Mm. The, the Milankovitch cycle is a cycle where the Earth's orbit goes from being more to less elliptical. It's never circular perfectly, Mm. but it's more or less elliptical, and that changes the way solar radiation comes to the Earth, makes it stronger and weaker. Then there's the 42,000-year cycle, which is the obliquity, uh, a a fancy word for tilt. The cycle of 42,000 years has to do with the Earth's tilt cycling, then there is the 20 or 21,000, I can't remember now, year cycle called precession, which is the precession of the tilt. The tilt varies in a cycle where right now it's pointing towards the North Star, but it won't always be mm. because it will go in a 21,000 year till it comes back to the North Star again. Those cycles affect the, where the solar radiation is falling particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, where most of the land is. And we can see those patterns reflected in climate change over the eons. But these are long-term these are long cycles, not like the thousand-year one from the Roman warm period to the medieval warm period to the modern warm period, which is overlaying over top of these mm. larger cycles. And so the Milankovitch cycles, it, in terms of, you know, modern the modern era, which mm. you could say is the last five million years or so, uh, the Milankovitch cycles have been governing these patterns of glaciation and and coming out of glaciation into interglacial periods. Going back into the larger picture, five hundred million years, say, the pattern of warming and cooling from hot periods, which have been much longer, to cold periods which are generally shorter, the ice ages, there is no pattern. They don't show any cycle that has a periodicity periodicity to it. Mm. They have happened, the Silurian uh, happened, uh, now I'm, you know, I'm just going to guess, like it was around 450 million years ago. And then the Carew ice age, which lasted for at least 60 million years, and the temperatures were as cold as they are now on Earth, and glaciers came and went all the time like they do now, supposedly. The Karoo Ice Age lasted for, as I say, and 290 years ago. This is the first ice age since then. Between 290 million years ago and just before now, like 5 million years ago, the Earth has been much warmer all through that period. There was no ice on the poles for 250 million years at least sure. before now but those, those periods are not and that's why it's stupid for people to think that we're in a hot period we're not we're in a cold period it's called the pleistocene ice age we're in an interglacial period which is a bit warmer than the glaciations but still even in the interglacial period if you look at the earth's history you will see that we are in a cold period just go on and mm. google 500 million year uh, temperature and CO2 curve and go to images. I mean, it's so easy to Google all this stuff. It's all there, and and everybody's on a hundred years.
0: But Patrick, uh, um, a a comment that so often comes up, um, particularly in in my uh, social media feeds, is that uh, no one's arguing all those things. They're saying that this acceleration in the last 200 years is the concern.
1: There is no acceleration. It's been up and down on an upward curve for the last 300 years since the Little Ice Age peaked in 1700. There's a thermometer record from central England that goes back to before 1700. It's like 1670 or something from central England that shows basically a perfectly straight rise with no acceleration. Mm. And yet CO2 has been accelerated. And you would expect therefore the temperature would be accelerating but it is not as a matter of fact over the last 20 years it has not risen anywhere near as much as the ipcc predicted back then and that is why we shouldn't trust their predictions first because it's impossible yeah. to predict it in the first place secondly because they're always predicting it to be worse than it turns out to be okay so and it isn't worse anyways there's nothing worse about a slight rise in global temperature it's beneficial it will actually make the northern hemisphere able to grow some food, whereas now you don't have to go up very far north in Canada or Russia to run out of food-growing conditions. And all there are is a bunch of mines uh, yeah. where minerals are being extracted and a bunch of people living in miserable climates. You know, It's not this... funny to have a country that the average temperature is minus 5.35 Celsius. Yeah, it's very it's cold. cold. Yeah, Yeah, I'm in the warmest part of Canada, and there's snow on the mountains right now. You know, and we I'm I'm over halfway to the north pole from the equator. Right. Sure. In the winter, the whole of Canada is white, all across, right from stem to stern, is freezing. Right? Why why would you want to be freezing? In California they can grow three crops a year. It's the land of milk yeah. and honey. You know, Sacramento.
0: Well I and can San Diego. I can, I can guarantee these, you- these are what I can guarantee you that the South African government would definitely not want the whole of South Africa to be white.
1: No, <laughs> that's funny.
0: <laughs> we'll just cut that out from the final edit. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you quickly. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the IPCC. Uh, now, I I've taken a fair amount of uh, of, of bullets um, on the internet. Uh, because I am extremely, uh, what's the word, um, I disregard just about everything that comes out of the IPCC. And apparently this is where the 97% consensus is housed. And how can you question the IPCC? This is the, the central bureau of, of climatic science. Um, why is it a good thing, in your view, to to basically uh, reject um, the IPCC's projections and, and reports?
1: Actually, there is some good science in the IPCC, but the IPCC in the final analysis is a political body that hires scientists to basically extend its mandate into the infinite future. Mm. And the only mandate of the IPCC is to study the human effect on global climate. They are not mandated to study the natural factors that affect the climate. So if they were, for example, to say, well, actually – humans are not the main cause of climate change. There would be no reason for them to exist.
0: Yes, so they have to play that role.
1: Yes, they they, they are automatically conflicted on the side of apocalypse, basically. And they they, they also, uh, if they said, yes, humans are causing the climate to change, but getting warmer will be good for the Earth and the Mm. people, uh, then there'd be no reason for them to exist either. So they have to say humans are doing it, It's all bad. At the political level, if you look at the uh, IPCC, it's made up of two UN bodies. It's a partnership between the World Meteorological Organization, which are, in fact, the scientists and the United Nations Environment Program, which is almost 100 percent political. It's the whole environmental narrative of the Earth coming to an end. Mm -hmm. All that stuff. Everything is bad. Nothing we do is good. Right. Except to stop living, probably. So. There you've got it in a nutshell. Mm. But if you if people go to the Internet and look up the World Meteorological uh, Organizations, Secretary General, he lives in Finland, he's Finn, and he just made some statements about this whole climate emergency thing is like a cult. The, the, the guy who's half the IPCC. And then it wasn't a week later that he was forced to make an official announcement about how he didn't really exactly mean what he'd said, mm. sure. Like the pressure on the pressure on people at that level in the UN and in world governments is so intense to toe the party line that it is very much like mm. communism. It is, and isn't it? That yes, yeah, so that is what I'm afraid of. Is that uh, that this Orwell was maybe thirty-six years early in his prediction of newspeak. And of everybody being required to say words that are politically correct. Like I'm, I, I had a couple of funny no, ones think, the other day. Like yeah. mo- most male and female words are illegal now, especially male words, mm. right? But what about fellow, as in all fellow South Africans or fellow Canadians? Because yes. the fellow is a guy, right?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And what about what about brethren? Hear ye me, bre- my brethren, <laughs> right? I think it's biblical,
0: yes. right?
1: But brethren means brothers, and they're males, yes. right? So what are we going to do about this?
0: <laughs> it's identity politics, and I guess that's a that's that's a topic for another day. I'm another day. I'm looking at the time now, and we've gone a few minutes over. Um, I would love to have you back on in the future. There's a lot more to cover. If you would be happy to join, maybe next year sometime. Um, there are so many questions um and so many more aspects to cover on, on on this would you would you be willing to to join me again next year
1: i'm in jeremy as you as you say we've only scratched the surface this is a i, I one one of my talks went three hours and half the people sure. were still there at the end of it
0: uh, i'll i'll end up uh getting getting a divorce if i if i spend the whole night uh, chatting to you <laughs> um thanks not a, no, not no we don't thing. want that. Thank you, Patrick, so so much. Uh, it's been you're most you're most welcome. At any time, I enjoyed speaking with you. It's a fascinating discussion. It's one that I am really interested in at the moment. I'm reading a lot about it, um, and I, and you're one of my favorite uh, uh, climate scientists. Can I say climate scientist, or is that a is that a nonsense term?
1: it's a nonsense term because the way they use that term is you're either a climate scientist or a climate denier that's how they that is actually how they're framing it yeah and and they are the climate scientists because they believe in that narrative and if you don't believe in that narrative you're not a climate scientist yeah so that because there actually is no such thing as a climate scientist climate is such a multifaceted discipline no, for sure. including astrophysics and oceanography and atmospheric mm. physics and you name it all the vegetation on earth you know, I mean, it's a huge, huge subject.
0: Well, um, I'll let you go. You've still got your whole day ahead of you. Um, my evening is slowly coming to an end. I will uh, stay in touch with you over over email about our next, our next chat. Thanks so much, Patrick. Excellent. Yeah, enjoy your last day there. Thank you. Um, I will drop uh, your information, your website, and all that uh, below the video as well. Um I think Thanks, it's a, I think it's an important uh, subject to 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 perpetuate. All right. Cheers Patrick.
1: Cheers, germ. bye bye.